Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an update on this week's flash flooding in the Poudre Canyon. Plus, we learned how Grand Lake residents have been banding together for recovery after last year's wildfires. It can be really difficult for someone who lost everything to discuss it over and over and over again. And we hear how an assault at the Capitol fits into a greater trend of violence toward journalists. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. On Wednesday afternoon, the Larimer County Sheriff's Office ordered the closure of the Poudre River due to recent flash flooding that began Tuesday evening in the upper part of Poudre Canyon. More than an inch of rain fell across the burn zone left last year by the Cameron Peak Fire, which burned more than 200,000 acres in Larimer and Jackson counties. The Poudre River flooding along Highway 14 this week, referred to by officials as the Black Hollow Flood, so far has resulted in at least one death and at least three other people are still missing. Several homes have been totaled as well, according to the Larimer Sheriff's Office. Similar flash floods and mudslides closed Interstate 70 through Glenwood Canyon on Tuesday. And on Wednesday afternoon, a mudslide in Grand County blocked Highway 125 between Granby and Walden. Both of these areas were also devastated last year by historic wildfires. KUNC's Matt Bloom is with us now for more on the situation unfolding along the Poudre River and how these recent mudslides and floods are connected back to wildfires. Hi, Matt. Hey there. So take us back to Tuesday night. That's when reports of this flooding up in Poudre Canyon began. Right. So around 5 p.m. on Tuesday, it started raining in an area of the mountains about 40 miles west of Fort Collins in the Poudre Canyon. And all that rain mixed with the dirt, the dead trees, rocks, and other debris in the burn scar and then flowed down the hillside into the Poudre River. Uh, There were at least six mudslides recorded of various sizes. And the thing to point out here is this is an area that has always been prone to flooding. But because of recent wildfires, a lot of residents and local first responders have been expecting this kind of situation to happen. Well, what have you been hearing and seeing since then? Photos coming out of the flood zone look devastating. Uh, There are massive piles of dead trees piled up in the river, smashed bridges. I spoke with Bellevue resident Andy Collins. He runs a hotel right on the Poudre River that lost power Tuesday night. He thought it was just a storm. So he left home, drove over to a friend's place, but then he ran into mudslides that were blocking the road in front of him. He describes the situation as chaotic with crews trying to clear the road at night, but but not being able to keep up with all the mud and debris flowing into the highway. So I saw the slide, so I turned around and went back up um, to get the, let the CDOT guys know because there was, with no power, no phone, they, were, they didn't have any idea what was going on either. So as soon as I saw the slide, I went back up and got the CDOT guys so that they could get down and assess the situation too. 
CDOT, the state's transportation department, has been able to reopen Highway 14, and Collins cabins and some of the visitors there were left unscathed, thankfully. They're still without power, but he's been able to call friends and family from another hotel farther downstream to, to let everyone know he's all right. There's obviously still a lot we don't know yet, but one thing that does seem to be emerging is the connection between these flash floods and mudslides and the burn scars that were caused by past wildfires. What can you tell us about all that at this point? We know there is a connection because a lot of the material that's now in the Poudre River is is black, frankly. It's burned material. And the scientists who study wildfires and the local first responders uh, who manage them have been putting out warnings for months now that there there is an elevated risk this year for floods because of how much land burned last year. The soil in these burn scars is just less stable. So a large storm can come in and easily shake the mountainside loose, which is exactly what happened Tuesday in the Poudre Canyon. I spoke with another resident in the Poudre Canyon, Chris Dinnan. She's the owner of Bighorn Cabins in Rustic, which is a town just downstream of the primary flood zone. She says she feels like there's really nothing they can do against Mother Nature in these kinds of situations other than just stay prepared. We're keeping our eye, of course, you know, and being vigilant if, if necessary. And uh, all of our people that are here have been, most of them have been here before and are very dedicated. They all feel very safe, and very comfortable where they are. Um, and we've been just, you know, trying to give them information as we hear it. When and if there are more evacuation orders, she says she will not hesitate to leave. Well, Matt, there is more rain in the forecast over the next few days. Officials are on high alert. What's on their minds right now? They're preparing for the worst. The Larimer County Sheriff's Office has shut down all recreation along the Poudre River up to the mouth of the canyon just west of Fort Collins. They say that closure could last through the weekend because the weather and flooding has been so unpredictable. Melissa Venable is with the Red Cross's Northern Colorado chapter, which has been helping out evacuees. It is kind of a tenuous situation right now. So if you're going to go camping, go camping somewhere else right now. We need to leave that area um, kind of free. And that way emergency workers could get up and out and in if they needed to. So keep, you know, stay away from that area if you don't live there. She says the threat of floods isn't going to go away after this week. It's going to stick around through this summer, just again, because those burn scars are so unstable. The best thing people can do to be prepared is just pay attention to phone and safety alerts from local officials and have an emergency kit ready to go with some basic supplies if they live in a flood-prone area. KUNC's Matt Bloom. Uh, Matt, thanks for your reporting on this. You're welcome. Tens of millions of dollars in state and federal money is finally reaching Grand Lake as the mountain community rebuilds after last year's deadly fire season. Grass is being planted on burned hillsides, and the town is again welcoming tourists. But as KUNC's Scott Franz reports, many residents are still traumatized, and they're banding together to find their own ways of recovering. Nine months have passed since the East Troublesome Fire ripped through the Grand Lake area, destroying more than 300 homes. Many are hesitant to talk to me about their losses. And then I meet Bill Bruton. Yesterday I was up there hiking in the park, and it's, uh, it's amazing. The longtime resident is leading a historical tour for a small group of visitors. During a short break, he tells me how the fire has changed areas inside Rocky Mountain National Park. The vistas are greater than they ever were 
because all there are are black pecker poles sticking up, but you can see ridges that I didn't know where they were because it was always green. But there's also signs of trouble from the state's second largest wildfire. The creeks have run in black now, sometimes after the rain. Um, people are a little nervous. Bruton did not suffer any personal losses during the fire, but to better understand how it impacted those who did, he suggests I stop by a newly opened museum. It's run by Emily Hagen, who leads Grand Lake's Chamber of Commerce. That is a piece of metal roofing material recovered from a home in Sun Valley Ranch. Hagen shows me a range of charred artifacts recovered from burned homes, including jewelry and other family heirlooms. And there's lots of photos. You can really see the intensity in some of these images. They're not easy to look at. But this wasn't an easy situation. There's not a way to make this fire right. Which got me wondering, why open an exhibit revisiting the town's darkest day, and so soon after it happened? It can be really difficult for someone who lost everything to discuss it over and over and over again. So this project started as an early version for me, as the chamber director, to support my businesses by giving them a place to send their guests who have questions so that they maybe get a break from talking about the fire. Some days they can, some days they can't. As we're looking around, Andy Pitcher arrives with another artifact for the growing display. It's a piece of burned tree bark from her ranch that was destroyed. She chokes up when she spots a large bowl of candy that pays tribute to Mary Lynn Heilman, a friend and neighbor who died in the fire along with her husband, Lyle. Mary Lynn had 40 bowls of candy in her house all the time. There'll always be candy in this bowl. But it's an honor for us who lost everything. People come and witness it. Just witness it. Just sit there with us and watch it. And that's when she invites me out to a family member's cabin on the outskirts of town to tell me more about her recovery from the fire. On my drive over, I can see other signs that things are starting to mend. There are these fields of brilliant purple lupine flowers, and they're growing right up to the charred earth. Hey, good to see you again. When I arrive, I can see just how close the cabin came to being consumed by flames that ripped through the trees just yards away. It may not look like the Ritz-Carlton, but right now, it's the Ritz-Carlton. Come in, have some lunch. Should I take my shoes off? I, you know, I can come off right here. Okay. Um, I think you're probably pretty good. We are not fancy here in Grand Lake. Andy Pitcher says she feels more comfortable here, surrounded by charred earth, than she does in town. That's because this area has already been burned. She lost a lot, but she also gives thanks for what she does have. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful unto thee for our many blessings for this place, for what was preserved in the fire. We're grateful for the attention and the witnessing of the fire and grateful for this food and, and that we have a that we have a roof over our head at this time. We ask that that would bless us, bless our loved ones, bless the food so it'll strengthen us and bless our land to come back and us to stay committed to it. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. After a meal of baked chicken, we drive down the road to what's left of her home. She calls it the black. This is the end of the county route here. And the gate, which must remain locked, sadly, is the gate to the vortex of the troublesome. And um, leads to the resting place of my loved ones, where they'll always be. 
and it and it's kind of oddly hallowed ground now. What are we walking on here? Well, that was the kitchen. <laughs> that was the double kitchen. There was the dance hall. There was. <laughs> I'll send you photos. This was the barn, quote unquote, the barn. All that remains is melted glass and a pair of cheap camping chairs that Pitcher has set up in an area she jokingly calls her office. Walmart. But among all this rubble, she sees opportunity. Everything's gone. The foundation's gone. But I think about, um, I think my septic system is still around. She thinks it could be the perfect place to build a tiny new home. Before we leave, I asked what she thought of the state's response to wildfires. There's not a, enough legislation to stop it. We thought about abatement. I mean, you know, we always had a plan in terms of clear the trees 300 feet from your building or, or how do we prevent, how do we prevent. The reality is we now need to come around to once cataclysm happens, geocataclysm happens to you, this is how you go on afterwards. Because we knew the fire was coming for 20 years. Nobody told me, nobody gave me a game book on how to go forward afterwards. But life in Grand Lake is moving ahead. A dozen or so tourists are looking at artifacts and asking questions about the fire back at the new East Troublesome exhibit. There's definitely days that are harder than others. Emily Hagen says the community is resilient and there are always reminders of the fire to deal with. For example, personally, I wasn't prepared for when the snow melt when the snowmelt happened, how dark the ground was. You know, having that layer of white really kind of softened the blow. Things like that occasionally happen. And they, it's kind of like a scab comes off your wound and you feel it for a few days and then it kind of heals back over and you just keep moving forward. All in all, we're doing really well. You know, we're a tough community that knows how to circle up around each other and take care of each other. I'm Scott Franz in Grand Lake. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Anti-journalist rhetoric and violence toward reporters has been on the rise in the last few years. The U.S. Press Freedom Tracker recorded 427 assaults against journalists in 2020 and 80 so far in 2021. Arrests of journalists have increased too. An incident at Colorado State Capitol Tuesday is right in line with this trend. A woman allegedly assaulted a reporter for the news outlet Colorado Politics while he was working in the building's press room. Luckily, that reporter, Pat Pobletti, was not seriously harmed. He's here with us now to talk about the attack and how it fits into current social and political attitudes toward journalists. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the incident. What happened on Tuesday? To, to give you a little bit of context to the situation, I'm a Capitol reporter. During the legislative session, I work out of the downstairs Capitol press room every business day. Every time there's a legislator in the building doing some sort of state activity, I'm there to cover it. The session ended in middle of June, early June, so haven't really been back a ton. I come back every once in a while to cover an event, and there was an event yesterday, so I covered the event, was, went back to the press room, was typing up my report. As I was working, I heard someone come into the press room behind me. A woman approached me. Generally, we started having a conversation, and remember, at this point, I'm on deadline. That means that I have a story that I need to turn pretty quickly. So. I'm kind of stringing the conversation along while I'm working. She's kind of going around looking at the various decorations we have set up in the press room. And generally, it's a pretty fine conversation. We talk about who she is, what she does. Kind of through the course of this, we find out that she is unemployed. She's homeless. I got the sense that she was only there because it's cooler inside the Capitol building than it was outside. And she wanted a little respite. All fine. I'm working. 
not really a big deal until she comes across a letter that one of my colleagues had pinned up on the wall from nonpartisan staff at the Capitol, kind of thanking journalists for the work that they do. After reading that, I think she kind of got the sense that she was in a press room and that I was a journalist and the temperature and the conversation started to rise at that point. You started seeing a lot of anti-journalist rhetoric that we've seen kind of deployed by the former president against journalists, obviously. Fake news, you guys just sit in here and make up lies, you're a poison to our society, all of that good stuff. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm at work, I don't need to be harassed like this. I try and like stand up and kind of usher her out. At that point, things kind of go up a notch in temperature one more time. She starts flipping stuff over on people's desks. She grabs some stuff off my colleague's desk, pushes me, kind of smacks at me. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go get the Capitol Security, which is State Patrol. I'm going to have them handle this because I'm still busy. I go get State Patrol work. I see her. We see her come out. She just took something that she was only able to take because I'm in there working. So it's my responsibility, I felt, to get that back. So they ended up kind of detaining her and getting the stuff back. It wasn't really until after I was kind of sitting in the press room reflecting on this crazy incident that just happened. It's like there was physical violence there. And I want to stress, I'm a six foot four, 225 pound man. I was a division one athlete in college. This woman was no bigger than five foot four. Like I, she was not physically threatening to me. Her actions in another sense could have been if it was a different person. And that's kind of where the what ifs play for me. Like what if, you know, this, instead of a five foot five woman, it was a six foot five woman or man that was, you know, trained in martial arts or MMA, whatnot, had physical capabilities, or what if this person had a weapon? The what ifs still kind of are bothering me. It's been more shaken up mentally than harmed physically. If there's a takeaway from this, it's not, oh, poor Pat Pobletti. It's, this is an issue in our society that is growing. It certainly does feel like that, like things that wouldn't have been acceptable, you know, just a few years ago now seem to be kind of par for the course. What this makes me wonder about is, you know, with violence and rhetoric, as we mentioned, rising to all-time highs in the last few years, are there other factors that you think are contributing to incidents like the assault that you experienced? Yeah, and I think this is probably more of like a meta commentary on kind of where we are as a society, but it feels like we are more divided than than we have ever been, at least in my lifetime. I'm 29 years old now, so I can't really, I'm not a historian, I'm a journalist, I can't really speak to, you know, the history of the United States, I can speak to what I've experienced in my lifetime. And it seems that division is the political currency of the day. Well, lastly, how do you think the relationship between the federal government and national media has impacted the relationship between local politics and local journalism? I think it's a really interesting question because I think we have a much different relationship at the state and local level in terms of policymakers and the media who cover them than we do at the federal level. What I mean is the way that media is consumed there in terms of what I do every day. It's very, very policy-based, very wonky in terms of this is the legislation that's coming down the pike. This is what lawmakers are saying about it. And I I feel broadly, when we talk about national level politics, it centers around more flashpoints. It's not quite as wonky. And that can kind of, in turn, expand into just these partisan fights and divides that in reality aren't 
necessarily always as apparent at the state level. I think, and, and the state level and the local level, I think there's much more desire and need, quite frankly, to accomplish you know legislative tasks at those lower levels of government. We live in a moment where it's been politically expedient for some of our leaders to demonize the press to the point where kind of sentiment of anti-journalism is flowing pretty strongly through society, I think. Pat Pobletti is a legislative reporter for the news outlet Colorado Politics. Pat, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is scaling back a proposed rule that would have required larger employers in the Denver metro area and the Northern Front Range to make it easier for employees to cut back on car travel. The Employer Traffic Reduction Program was a central piece of a larger plan by the state to reduce air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. But late Tuesday, CDPHE officials announced they would make the program voluntary. Here with more on the program's bumpy ride is Ken Amundsen, managing editor of Biz West. Ken, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be with you, Erin. What did the ETRP program call for as it was originally proposed? Well, a number of different things. It would have affected businesses in the Denver area and the North Front Range with more than 100 employees. They would have been required to develop plans to reduce the single vehicle occupancy um, trips to and from work. They had set some targets in there that would, uh, over a period of years, would reduce those from, if you say it's 100% of people driving in single vehicles uh, right now, they'd have to reduce that to 75% by a certain time and 60% after that. Uh, They'd have to hire a transportation coordinator. Uh, They'd have to develop some baselines and keep track of this and so on and so forth, uh, and then report periodically on um, whether they're meeting goals or not. And telecommuting, increased access to telecommuting, was that that was part of this too? That would be one of the strategies I would think that uh, employers would want to use to meet the targets, uh, telecommuting, carpooling, providing uh, passes for bus services, all that sort of thing, you know, any way to get people out of their car if they were traveling to work just by themselves. There was a lot of pushback from business groups, uh, including the Colorado Chamber of Commerce and the Northern Colorado Legislative Alliance, among others. What were their arguments against it as it was written? There was a couple things, a couple major things. One was that uh, they were not convinced that the baselines were accurate. Uh, We've just come through a pandemic. We really don't know what's going to happen here or what is happening now with regard to uh, people traveling to work and what will happen over the next several months as people return to work, you know, if they actually return to the office. (laughs) They may be working from home for a long time. So the baselines they were saying were not accurate and therefore the some of the targets would have been off base trying to reduce against something that doesn't really exist. Now this proposal is still set to be discussed at an August rulemaking hearing uh, with, you know, air quality officials and state health officials. What has changed with this proposal? Well, we heard Tuesday night that uh, they had relaxed some of the rules. Uh, I'm assuming they'll still have their hearing in August, uh, and but between now and then they'll be devising some different rules that might apply. They don't have those rules written yet, but apparently they will include some voluntary development of plans by companies, uh, some incentives for early adopters of, of strategies that may work toward this goal of reducing number of uh, vehicle miles traveled 
They're probably going to require large employers to conduct some surveys so they can establish a true baseline uh, on how many people are driving to work in a carpool or driving to work uh, as individuals. Um, and they still would like some uh, aspirational goals within the structure, trying to reduce the amount of single occupancy vehicles to 60% by 2025. So a number of things are similar, but uh, it looks like there's more of a voluntary aspect to it. As we mentioned, this was a cornerstone of the Polis administration's strategy for combating air pollution. Not the only piece, but it certainly was a a major component. But there are still a lot of unknowns as we recover from the pandemic. So how does this fit into a larger context of of where we are? That's a good question. And I'm not sure that we know at this point, but um, the fact that the state came back and uh, relaxed some of this even before the hearing that's a little unusual, I think. And so uh, I think they've, they've seen that, hey, maybe we don't have all the information we need to establish these baselines, to establish you know, what's happening in the workplace now and whether employers are already providing uh, bus tokens and all that sort of thing and whether they plan to uh, provide those in the future. So a lot of questions remain unanswered and this will establish uh, time to establish some of those, uh, that baseline information for the future. Ken Amundsen is managing editor of BizWest. You will find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Ken, thanks so much for speaking with us. You're welcome, Aaron. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Aaron O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.